my, my pleasure to also welcome you and thank you all for coming tonight. And I want to also thank on behalf of my fellow panelists, Dr. Hildebrand, Dr. Kelly, and Dr. Perry, and their respective departments for sponsoring this first conversation on a question that clearly concerns us all, no matter where we land on it. It is particularly fitting, as I already said, that by God's providence, we are holding this event on the feast day of St. Albert the Great. Just a few words about, about him, about whom we could say quite a bit. He was above all a great scholar and a writer, and also worthy of note, he was St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher and his most ardent defender. He was one of the first to introduce the work of Aristotle into the intellectual milieu of his day. He would be very proud of us tonight as we begin to take up what he would surely recognize as a modern day equivalent of a disputed question. Just like in the Middle Ages, only now we have social media to compl complicate the discussion. If he were here, he would surely remind us that all truth is from God and that the wise depend on God for their wisdom. Our topic tonight, why the surging interest in socialism and how shall we respond, is a species of what the Catholic intellectual tradition has long referred to as the social question. That is, as Father William Byron articulated it several decades ago now, how can we live in peace secured by justice? This question has concerned Christian communities since the earliest days of the church, and we have been arguing about it ever since. We are here tonight to address it in its more contemporary expression. This question has gotten considerably sharper recently, if not actually any more precise, as the West faces what often seems to be a full frontal attack on the underlying moral, cultural, legal, juridical, and economic systems that arguably have provided the foundations for the standard of living and our quality of life for almost 250 years. For those of us who witnessed, at least from a distance, the aftermath of World War II, or lived through the Soviet era, or remember the rise of Cuba, of China, or who saw firsthand the descent of Venezuela and other similar historical events, this, the interest in so-called socialism is somewhat bewildering. Yet public discourse and the data do seem to reflect that more young people are expressing a dissatisfaction with what appears to them to be, a, I'm sorry, with um, a dissatisfaction with what is somewhat loosely referred to as capitalism and are leaning more, more toward what appears to them to be a viable alternative, also somewhat loosely referred to as socialism. We are here tonight to begin a community effort to, to understand why that might be, what those terms really mean, and what stance is called for by faithful Catholics such as ourselves. My assignment is to frame our conversation, provide a few guidelines and a couple of definitions, and then to introduce our presenters, economics professor Dr. Juan Horegi and uh, Dr. Andrew Jones, 
Dr. Hauregi and Dr. Jones, along with Dr. Alex Plato, who was sitting right over there, um, and myself, have worked together for several weeks to think through what we might hope to accomplish at tonight's event. Our aims are somewhat limited at this first conversation. We don't expect to get to the bottom of the issue tonight. But we would like to achieve three things. We would like to understand better why people have grown disenchanted by capitalism and are looking to some version of socialism, especially in light of its track record. Dr. Haregi will speak to that. I personally would really like to understand the spread of opinion on this topic in this audience as, as best we can tonight because as the, the words first conversation implies, there's going to be more. And we want to be sure that we order those events in such a way that they respond to the questions you have. Okay? So it'll be very important to bring those up or let me know what you're thinking. <clears throat> Second, we would like to establish some parameters for laying out the Catholic response to all this, and that Dr. Jones will address. And finally, we would like to take a moment to provide at least a working definition of three terms, socialism, capitalism, and you may be surprised to hear it, the word liberalism. We'll take up these definitions first. Strictly speaking, as traditionally defined, tradition, uh, socialism means public ownership of the means of production. That is, government control of the economy. It does not mean the welfare state, public services, or even the occasional state-owned enterprise. The Nordic democracies are not socialist. They have markets. Nor is Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or AOC, at least not yet. Even if they call themselves that, they're not really socialists. They are not advocating for the total takeover of the economy by the state, at least not publicly. Almost no one advocates for that, again, at least not yet. It is on this basis, as well as several other aspects of its foundations, that Dr. Jones will unpack, that Pius XI says in Quadragesimo Anno number 120, if socialism, like all errors, contains some truth, it is based nevertheless on a theory of human society peculiar to itself and irreconcilable with true Christianity. Religious socialism, Christian socialism, are contradictory terms. No one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist." End quote. Now what about capitalism? For our purposes here, we would like to suggest that we desist from referring to capitalism as the system that stands in opposition to a more collectivist framework. Frankly, capitalism is a confusing and sort of ambiguous bucket of meanings and entities that includes Google and Amazon, Walmart and Target, and then right on down to your local bar or restaurant. Dr. Hauregi will have more to say about this in a moment, but we are going to suggest that we refer to this approach as the free market or free enterprise. This avoids the error of confusing support for the market-based economic approach 
with unqualified support for big business or global the global economy or the phenomenon of corporate welfare and crony capitalism. Last, the word liberalism, liberal or liberalism. This is maybe the murkiest of all. Liberalism used to refer to several things we probably all agree on to one degree or another. This would be so-called classical liberalism. It includes the rule of law, individual rights, including the right to own property, and a commitment to limited government. These are things that somewhat ironically in 2021 would be called conservative. Dr. Jones will clarify uh, all of this, I believe, and also point to these terms and systems more as historical phenomena than objectively concrete realities that remain stable over time. Just one last thing before I introduce our speakers, and these are, I want to introduce some guidelines for our work tonight and for the work we're going to continue into the second semester of this academic year. Now, I'm a little tired myself of the word dialogue. It's been overused, even misused of late. But the definition of the term is helpful. It comes from the Greek word dialogos, which refers to allowing meaning to flow through. And there are two sets of skills needed for real dialogue to occur, advocacy and inquiry skills. The human mind is certainly ordered toward making judgments about what we think is so, and we all have the right to advocate for our position. But in the effort to understand, to achieve meaning, inquiry skills are also necessary. I advocate for my position in a spirit of inquiry. I indicate I indicate this is what I think, while at the same time inviting my interlocutor to tell me what he thinks. Above all, we want to learn something tonight, to have our minds changed, or maybe change someone else's. But selfishly, I would like to understand what the questions and points of uncertainty are, so that in the spring, we can line up some events and opportunities for discussion based on what this particular community needs. And perhaps by the end of the spring semester, we will have gotten to the bottom of this issue, or at least close. I would like to thank the organizers for inviting me to speak tonight. Um, we were told, uh, why do we have this interest in socialism and how we should respond? Bernie Sanders was the second most voted candidate in the Democratic primary in the last two presidential elections. And he says he's a democratic socialist. Black Lives Matter is, strong, is a strong political force and it proclaims itself to be socialist. Socialism in general seems to be more broadly favored and accepted among Americans than in the past. We observe this especially among the youth and in the university environment and it translates also in more favorable treatment in the press. It is not accepted by most Americans, and we do not observe a political force trying to establish radical changes or to install a socialist political order. However, the environment is not the same we observed 25 years ago. 
Why do we see a surging interest about socialism? I will offer the perspective of an economist in this discussion. I will address four issues. What economic problems may make people look for something different? What solutions do we have in the current system? The failure of socialist policies and the dangers of a slippery slope of bad policies and big government. Overall, my presentation will be a defense of a system in which the free enterprise brings prosperity and ensures the fulfillment of people and the role of government to defend justice and work for the common good. The role of government includes through the defense of property rights and the liberty of people, defending the freedom of markets and free enterprise. Current economic problems. Some problems may make people look for something different. Every generation has its problems, and there will always be those who think radical changes are necessary. When problems are more serious, the political support for radical change grows. It is natural. I will mention some problems of this day. We are facing lower economic growth. Real GDP growth has been anemic, being gradually lower for several decades, except for specific periods. This phenomenon speaks of a difficulty to increase prosperity. Income stagnation in the segments of the population with lower income is a more serious problem, in which prosperity seems not to be shared among everybody. Job insecurity among the population, especially the young, makes it more difficult for a vast segment of the society to feel that it belongs. Increasing levels of household debt brings a state of permanent anxiety over too many households that feel that the perspective of future prosperity vanishes. The high debt is the result of past expectations of prosperity not realizing for many. And it can be read as a consequence of the income stagnation and job instability. When problems arise in an already highly indebted household, financial disaster follows for that family. The public sector is also highly indebted, with government debt growing in ways that call sustainability into question. Unceasing demand for government benefits from segments in the population, together with an insatiable thirst of power from policymakers and rulers, contribute both to a continuous increase of government expenditure to levels that are not prudent. High expenditure will be an obstacle for growth and a source of externation, which was one of the problems mentioned before, reinforcing negative dynamics. Anemic taxation that seems unable to keep pace with the spending debilitates government finance. Additionally, tax authorities fail to tax fairly, putting excessive burden on the lower income segments of the population and taxing lightly those that should contribute more to public finances. Financial crises are the natural consequences of the fragilities presented before, especially those related to high indebtedness. When risks materialize, the losses aggravate the problems of high debt and income stagnation. And when crises follow, 
periods of financial exuberance, the lack of prudence is made evident. Public bailouts of corporations that were not properly run, many times with funds from taxes of common people, and frequently with no negative consequences for managers that walk away enriched after the crash, speaks of lack of integrity, debilitating the public trusts in the leaders of both business and government. Is recognizing these problems anti-market rhetoric? No, it is a list of things that may need to be improved. Some things can go wrong and often do. We recognize the problems to develop solutions. We can improve the economy and make policy proposals. Is it to work against the market? It is not. The market is good and needs proper institutions and good policies. As anything human, a market can be abused by those that seek to serve themselves at the cost of others. Properly regulating a market is not going against the market, but protecting the market from abuses in the same way that proper laws protect society and enhance freedom. Good regulation fosters free markets and free enterprise. There are ways to address the legitimate concerns of those that are discouraged and may want radical solutions in a manner that serves justice without hurting freedom. We can improve long-term growth prospects, making it also more stable and increasing share prosperity. Good policies are not support, supposed to hurt markets, but serve by diminishing the abuse that some market participants may make of markets, allowing them to function better. So we have reasons to worry, and some people have reasons to think radical changes are necessary. But are they? After all, most of the people in the US live better than people all over the world. People from all over the world want to come to live in the US, and only a few migrate from the US to other countries. Maybe radical changes are not necessary, and we should improve the current system, making it fairer. Behind these problems, there is mainly the need of better economic institutions for a fairer society. Business people and policymakers should recognize the legitimacy of the concerns. With respect to the specific policies that they may be implemented, I will briefly enumerate a few that can be undertaken, are perfectly compatible with property rights, freedom, and justice, and make sense from an economic point of view. First, it would be good to tax some financial transactions that are at the center of financial speculation. For example, credit default swaps, short selling of securities, and non-deliverable forwards. Credit default swaps allow for payment to be received in case of a default of a third party, even if the transacting parties do not have any claim affected by the default. Short selling of securities are sales of borrowed securities. And non-deliverable forwards are contracts that require future payments for the difference in prices in securities. These transactions are used frequently in ways that exceed the mitigation of risk that justifies them, and are, on the contrary, exacerbating risks and market volatility. They create negative externalities 
that these negative consequences on third parties that will have to suffer a cost. These externalities justify taxation to reduce their amount. Taxation also internalizes their costs, transferring them back to those that currently suffer the negative consequences of the, to the actors that generate them. The proceeds of the taxes can be used to improve financial stability. By funding the regulatory authorities and providing funds for eventual bailouts. Some of the taxes could be levied by an act of Congress or state legislatures. However, the same effect could be achieved through the action of regulators. Administrative or transaction fees mandated by prop the proper regulators to market participants could achieve the same end. This more decentralized approach could allow for optimal fine-tuning over time. This proposal will reduce market volatility, increase resilience in the financial sector, and reduce the fiscal risks of bailouts. Second, the need for adequate and complete financial reporting and disclosure of risks related to securities is something well recognized by market participants and regulators. Also for financial institutions in general, better reporting is necessary. We have seen an improvement in this area over the years, but further progress is necessary. Third, there is room to rebalance the source of public revenue, lowering the effective taxes of taxation of labor income, and compensating with higher taxation of capital income, especially capital gains. Proposals in that direction would increase fairness in taxation, bringing higher legitimacy to public finances, and decreasing the appeal of socialism and other political proposals that are detrimental of property rights, freedom, and justice. Fourth, government bailouts of financial sector institutions are to be done with specific purpose funds that come from taxes to the financial sector. It is obvious that bailouts can be necessary, but they must be limited in size and frequency as much as possible, and with proper financial regulation and other policies. For example, monetary policy must properly account for financial sector, sector disruptions generated by two contracted policies or for the financial exuberance created by two expansive policies. But even if bailouts become necessary, they should be funded through financial sector taxes. The Federal Deposit Insurance Commission is a good example of how these policies are desirable. Fifth, government should renew their efforts, governments should renew their efforts to reduce tax avoidance through international investment and deceitful transfer pricing, which both can allow market participants to avoid pay, paying the fair share of taxes. When a company owns corporations in several countries, there are many export and import transactions that are both on both sides on the same company. And the prices of those transactions are called transfer pricing. By increasing the prices of the exports in low-tax jurisdictions and decreasing the prices of imports in high-tax jurisdictions, 
A company can use transfer prices to increase the profits in places where the taxes are low. But the profits may belong to economic activity elsewhere. These days, corporations can park their profits easily in low-tax jurisdictions, misrepresenting the source of the profits or the true jurisdiction of the economic activity that generates the profit. Recent initiatives to correct transfer prices, to homogenize corporate tax rates, and to better allocate the fiscal duties of digital business are praiseworthy. Six, there needs to be more responsible public financial management. There is excessive public spending, which leads to higher fiscal deficit and debt. There is too much wasteful spending and too many government programs that do not merit their size, and in some cases, even their existence. Corporate welfare also needs to be reduced and frequently ends up in agency capture in ways that are unfair. Overall, the level of public spending should be lower, with a reduction in debt and lower overall effective taxation. The measures presented above will bring significant improvement to the conditions that have some people looking for radical changes. Some of the problems may be completely solved. We can achieve higher income growth, lower poverty, increased job stability, lower debt levels, fewer crises, and a better sense of a stable, prosperous, and fair society. We have witnessed how socialist experiments in the past were a complete disaster. The USSR, Eastern Europe, and China before the 90s, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and many others. The disaster is so clear that nobody advocates for imitating something like that. But we should remember that those that took those countries to that sorrowful state advocated for some, something different. So when we find proposals that have a taste of those socialist experiments, we must be careful. I will discuss some basic problems we see in socialist proposals. The basic tenet of socialism is state ownership of the means of production. Socialist proposals put more resources and properties in the hands of the government. Also, they restrict freedom in the use of private property. As an economic system that restrains property or heavily constrains its use, it is hurting freedom, freedom that belongs to its citizens. And restrictions not only affect the use of property, but also all economic activity, including work. Socialist policies restrict the ability of citizens to choose where and how to work, what endeavors to pursue, whom to serve, what professions join, where to live, how to associate with who to associate with and in what form of association. All these restrictions against freedom are intrinsically unfair. They should be opposed as a matter of principle. These restrictions to the use of property and to choices of how to work, including choices related to entrepreneurial activity, also bear tremendous costs for society. And this is what we observed in the failed experiments in the past. And why do they fail? Because people acting freely are better able to improve every day the way they go about their business. Having the ownership of the property and the claim to the benefits of the action 
provides incentive for continuous improvement of every process, for attention to detail, for minimizing waste, for avoiding excessive risk, for organizing things better, for dealing with those that perform better their tasks, for fulfilling their duties. All these bring permanent increase in prosperity. Things are continually done in the way that is more efficient and better ways to do things are searched for and adopted. Another aspect usually overlooked in the losses that come to society because the preferences of people are not properly taken into consideration. In the free market, people can choose what to buy and reward with their purchase those products and services more valued. When there is an authority that can restrict the supply or diminish the number of options or the innovation in new products or services, even if it relates only to what somebody may think are an important details, great losses can follow. In the end, the failure of the socialist approach to economics means stagnation, low growth, waste, loss of prosperity, poverty, and fewer opportunities for business, professionals, and workers. We have the failure of the communist regimes of Eastern Europe, China, the Soviets, Cuba, and many others. But I would like to focus for a moment in Venezuela. The case of Venezuela is interesting because now it is in a state of disaster that nobody would accept. But the disaster began in a way that was praised by half of the continent. Actually, a lot of the political friends of Chavez are still around and ruling, like Kirchner in Argentina. Others are members of parties that used to be allies of the Chavism and that continue to define themselves as sympathizers of some form of socialism. And they defend putting in place policies that are similar to those implemented by Chavez in his first two administrations. He had a combination of big government and heavy-handed political control of economic activity in the private sector. Eventually, expropriations became massive and the economy derailed completely. But before what we could call the revolutionary phase of expropriations, the economy was in a downward spiral because of big government. And this is the warning of big government policies that are so frequently favored by political leaders that speak nicely of some form of socialism. Big government brings the bad things mentioned before, stagnation, poverty, waste, and fewer opportunities for everybody, including workers. The slippery slope should be avoided at all costs because it is very easy to enter. It is very difficult to notice the problems at the beginning. And when the problems become serious, it may be too costly to climb up. And more importantly, big government feels good initially. So the prudent voices of those that argue against it meet opposition from many as the majority do not see any problem. And when the prudent argue against spending, they are vilified as being opposed to some things that are good in themselves. The goods coming from increased spending are tangible. The risks, the goods that may be lost in the future with stagnation are intangible. But eventually, 
the government will detract from growth with lower innovation and efficiency, putting the economy in an administrative slow speed path. And high taxes will burden the economy, diminishing the incentives to invest and grow. And if taxes do not grow at the speed of spending, public debt will. And with higher debt, higher interest rates and higher risks associated with that debt will detract from investment and growth in a similar manner. Argentina has suffered from the problems of big government and stagnation for a long time. During the 90s, the country had several years of healthy growth and low inflation. It is not a coincidence that it followed reforms that reduced public spending to about 25% of GDP. With the Kirchner family and their self-proclaimed socialist friends, public spending grew to peak at 43% of GDP in a decade that saw inflation going up and becoming entrenched. Stagnation and high debt followed, and with them, another crisis. Public spending is, now, is lower now, at a comparable level with that of Brazil. Also at a similar level is public debt, at 100% of GDP. But the problems in Argentina continues to be, to be serious. But is the slippery slope of big government to be a concern in the US? Well, certainly the economy in the US functions much better, and problems are not as serious. But the concerns of those that suffer the problems that we mentioned before are to be addressed, because the slippery slope of big government is a risk. Big spending plans are being passed in Congress. In 2020, public spending in the US was 43% of GDP, the same 43% we saw in Argentina a few years ago. The question before us is why there is an increased interest in socialism and what we ought to do about it. To help us answer it, I want to turn to the writings of Pope Pius XI. Pius is important for this question first because other than Leo XIII himself and perhaps John Paul II, Pius XI is the most important contributor to the formation of social doctrine. Second, because Pius occupied the papal throne from 1922 until 1939. This was a time in Europe in many ways similar to what we are facing today. It was a time of political and economic turmoil that saw the rise of the, the great 20th century totalitarian movements, fascism and socialism. Pius developed Catholic social teaching to address this situation, and he directly addresses the question of why socialism was on the rise. Pius's answer to our question might be a bit hard to our ears. So, ready for it? <laughs> Pius blames capitalism, which he sometimes refers to as individualist economics or the current economic system, or most often as liberalism, which is the way I'll normally, uh, the word I'll use most of the time to this talk. And just to give a very, very quick sort of working definition of liberalism, because I know we're all confused because we, we, we tend to think it means Democrats. Um, but it's something like a form of society or a form of social order where the end of society is the maximum, maximal fulfillment of individual desires, whatever they happen to be, all right? So something like that. So I know many of us probably recoil from this charge of Pius's, but this is a bias that we must overcome if we're going to understand the wisdom in Pius's teaching. 
Pius asserts that we must navigate between the reefs of individualism on one side and collectivism on the other. For Pius, collectivists are only the flip side of the individualist coin. Collectivism is born out of individualism. They are bound up together like a two-headed monster. As Pius stated succinctly, quote, liberalism is the father of this socialism that is pervading morality and culture, and Bolshevism will be its heir, end quote. Pius explains the connections between liberalism and socialism in part through an historical explanation. In his telling, before liberalism, the social world was shaped by what we might call structures of solidarity. These were things like the family, the community, the church, the guild, various professional associations, and then political structures like the town or village. Such structures are rooted in neighborliness and friendship. These structures were manifested as ordered hierarchies of authority and care that ascended all the way to the level of what we call the state and which were governed by the moral law. In principle, each level in this hierarchy of solidarity cared for or helped the level below, even while being obedient to and receiving the care of the levels above. The whole hierarchy was ordered toward the happiness and ultimately the salvation of each individual person. The highest, we might say, was for the lowest. Power was for weakness. Pius developed the principle of subsidiarity in order to describe this type of social hierarchy. Now, Pius was not naive, and he knew that the pre-modern world was not sort of some sort of Christian utopia. That was not his point. His point was, however, that it had been better than the contemporary world because it had been rooted in the Christian imperative of love of God and neighbor, which manifested itself in social authority that was always a participation in the very authority of God himself. An order of subsidiarity is an order of authority, starting with the authority of a simple father and ascending to the authority of the king and even beyond him to God himself. Authority came from above in order to lift up what was below. In this conception, political power was not from the people. It was from God. The popes of the 19th and 20th century, uh, early 20th century at least, never tired of insisting on this point. All social power was from God. This was the heart of a just society based on solidarity. Love flowed down. This is what Pius XI referred to as the reign of Christ the King, to the, re the restoration of which he devoted his pontificate. Pius argues that liberalism as a historical phenomenon was the process of replacing structures of justice with structures of exploitation, of replacing solidarity with selfishness. This dynamic is, of course, present in the theories of liberalism themselves, which suppose society to be made up of self-interested actors who come together only to further their self-interest and which placed authority, replaced, excuse me, authority with the disinterested invisible hand of economic laws and the indifferent political enforcement of property rights. F.A. Hayek, a very prominent liberal theorist at about the time Pius XI reigned, extolled liberalism's achievements in this department. Writing, <clears throat> writing of a, quote, gradual transformation of a rigidly organized hierarchic system into one where men could at least attempt to shape their own life. During the whole of this modern period, the general direction of social development was one of freeing the individual from the ties which had bound him to the customary or prescribed ways, end quote. As a liberal, Hayek, of course, framed all of history within the individualist versus collectivist dichotomy. 
and so saw all the pre-modern structures as merely forms of stifling collectivism. Hayek and Pius seem to see the same historical reality, the replacement of small and personal forms with large impersonal forms, but they see it from nearly opposite directions. Pius wrote, quote, things have come to such a pass through the evil of what we have termed individualism that following upon the overthrow and near extinction of that rich social life, which was once highly developed through associations of various kinds, there remain virtually only individuals and the state, end quote. The liberals thought the reduction of society to the individual and the state was a good thing. Pius, following the tradition, asserted that it was not. But this was not because Pius was a collectivist. Rather, it was because Pius understood humanity at a more profound level. In the Catholic reading, because real power differentials in human society are not just natural, but are inevitable, liberalism amounted not to the actual equalization of society to that of free individuals under abstract, abstract law, but rather it amounted to the masking of true power behind merely formal equality and the elimination of this real power's responsibility to care for the weaker members of society. Liberalism, for example, pretended that the boy working in the factory and the factory owner were equal. This freed the factory owner from the moral implications of his obviously greater power. All power, the Catholic tradition maintained, was a mediation of the power of God, and so bore his image and so must be ordered by justice for the perfection of all. The liberals, on the other hand, maintain that power ought not to be a social phenomenon at all, that equality under the law and universal negative rights were eliminating such concerns of a bygone age. For many liberals, wherever there were human relations not based on individualist competition, there was necessarily collectivism. Converting all pre-modern structures to liberal ones, then, was the liberals' path to freedom. This is mistaken. Because power is real, <clears throat> excuse me, and okay, because power is real and has unavoidable consequences, that's why it's mistaken. Think of a father with his son. It doesn't matter if the father denies the existence of his power. That doesn't make it go away. Even if he denies it, a father's behavior forms his son into a certain type of person. Regardless of how equal to his son he pretends to be, the selfish and abusive father cannot avoid the consequences of the reality of social power, and so his son will always bear the scars of his abuse, most tragically but all too often by becoming abusive himself. Power, whether just or unjust, tends to replicate itself in those subject to it. Liberalism created a society that masked real power within a formally equal competition for the maximum satisf satisfaction of self-interest. This began at the top. Excuse me, this is. Hold on, just give me a second. I think I got it. This began at the top with the wealthy structuring themselves as competing powers. But because power is real and efficacious, these structures were reproduced over time down and through the social whole. This was not merely a structural transformation, it was a moral and spiritual transformation. The self-interest-based structures of liberalism produced vicious men who then extended these structures, which then produced more effective mechanisms for the production of vicious men. 
This was an accelerating process that favored, Pius asserted, men who were further along in the destruction of their consciousness, consciousness. As society became increasingly morally bankrupt, the last remnants of a society of solidarity were colonized, including finally the state itself. This is, very, this is a very important point. What Pius was arguing was that as the ethos of liberalism was internalized, it necessarily destroyed the, con the conditions of possibility for liberalism itself because the actors within the liberal regime no longer cared about preserving the structures of liberalism. Rather, all structures, including the state, became just another realm of competition for power where the victors would use that power for their self-interest. The great liberal thinker Ludwig von Mises once wrote, quote, liberalism is not a policy in the interest of any particular group, but a policy in the interest of all mankind. Fair enough. But the problem should be immediately obvious. In whose individual interest is it to maintain the interests of all mankind? If, is Mises not suggesting then that liberalism must ultimately rest on non-liberal suppositions? At the very least, that those who control the state must not themselves be actors within the liberal order, but stand somehow outside that order and in service to some truth greater than that order? The point <clears throat> is that there was a contradiction within liberalism because it relied upon a state that was disinterested and that cared about the common good and so still bore the mark of solidarity of pre-liberal Christianity. This was the last great power of solidarity that was conquered, according to Pius, by the liberal ethos of competitive gain. Pius writes, and forgive the long quotation, <clears throat> quote, the concentration of power and might, the characteristic mark, as it were, of contemporary economic life, is the fruit that the unlimited freedom of struggle among competitors has of its own nature produced, and which lets only the strongest survive. And this is often the same as saying those who fight the most violently, those who give least heed to their conscience. This accumulation of might and of power generates in turn three kinds of conflict. First, there is the struggle for economic supremacy itself. Then there is the bitter fight to gain supremacy over the state in order to use in economic struggles its resources and authority. Finally, there is conflict between states themselves. The ultimate consequences of the individualist spirit in economic life are that free competition has destroyed itself. Economic dictatorship has supplanted the free market. Unbridled ambition for power has likewise succeeded greed for gain." End quote. When the drive for amassing wealth and power penetrated the state, it became cynical. It became unprincipled, a dictatorship. This is what Pius saw happening in the 1920s and 1930s. Power-hungry and unscrupulous men had risen to the top and had converted the structures of power to their ends. This, Pius argued, was just liberalism destroying itself according to its own principle of the primacy of self-interested competition. These dynamics were playing out among the poor as well, though in a different way. As the traditional structures of solidarity were eliminated, people were thrust into a world of competition within which, within which they could not win. As the powerful became increasingly self-interested, the workers appropriately stopped viewing them as authorities who cared for their well-being and started viewing them as their oppressors, as their masters. They had to submit to these masters because of the consequences of not doing so, 
But this submission was not obedience. It was rather self-interested. The self-interest of the masters was replicated in the self-interest of the workers. The people became increasingly envious and resentful, as ironically they became more like the people who were abusing them. In such mutual greed, Pius says, we see the origins of class conflict. It was a downward spiral. As Pius describes the situation, quote, thus it came to pass that many, much more than ever before, were solely concerned with increasing their wealth by any means whatsoever, and that in seeking their own selfish interests before any, everything else, they had no conscience about committing even the gravest of crimes against others. Those first entering upon this broad way that leads to, to destruction easily found numerous imitators of their iniquity by the example of their manifest success, by their insolent display of wealth, by their ridiculing of the conscience of others, or lastly, by crushing more conscientious competitors. With the rulers of economic life abandoning the right road, it was easy for the rank and file of workers everywhere to rush headlong also into the same chasm." End quote. The destruction of solidarity led to the unhappiness of the people. Hierarchies of subsidiarity, structures of solidarity, develop out of a people oriented to truth and so to real happiness, because that is the form the fulfillment of that objective takes, even, even as it is the means of achieving it. A happy family, for example, both produces happy people and is the form of life that happy people build. This holds true of, for all social structures of solidarity. Happy people build decentralized and pluralistic societies of ascending authority because such societies are what make people happy. The destruction of these structures then and the replacement of them by hegemonic structures of self-interest was both caused by and produced social unhappiness. People were increasingly lonely and afraid. They were anxious and restless. They were frustrated and increasingly angry, even if they didn't understand why. As Pius remarked, quote, that blessed tranquility which is the effect of an orderly existence and in which the essence of peace is to be found no longer exists, and in its place the restless spirit of revolt reigns, end quote. Here then we have all the pieces for a socialist reaction to liberalism. As Pius explains, quote, if we would explain the blind acceptance of communism by so many thousands, we must remember that the way had been already prepared for it by the religious and moral destitution in which wage earners had been left by liberal economics. It can surprise no one that the communistic fallacy should be spreading in a world already to a large extent de-Christianized." Historically, socialism is a reaction to capitalism that does not question liberalism's fundamental premises, nor the historical consequences of their application. Socialism begins with the affirmation of class conflict. It does not suggest that class, class conflict is wrong, but rather that it must be waged as ruthlessly as possible. It affirms the bitterness and envy of the workers against the wealthy, even as it suggests that the wealthy must, in their natures, oppress the workers. Both classes were merely pursuing their self-interest, which for the socialist, as for the liberal, is the universal law of history. Socialism does not question liberalism's implicit philosophical materialism or moral relativism, but makes them explicit. It does not question liberalism's practical atheism, but makes it explicit. 
It does not lament liberalism's destruction of the family, morality, the church, or traditional ways of life, but rather seeks to complete the, the destruction. It does not challenge liberalism's obsession with equality, but shifts the obsession from formal equality to material equality. It does not question liberalism's drive for the accumulation of wealth, but rather doubles down and argues that socialism will outproduce capitalism, that socialism will eliminate scarcity. They actually said that. <laughs> it does not seek to stop liberalism's concentration of property into fewer and fewer hands, but wants to complete it. It does not even question the form of industrial production, but rather, as Lenin himself explained, it seeks to turn all of society into one giant factory. It does not question that the state is a mere instrument of the powerful's oppression of the weak, the reality that Pius recognized as the consequence of liberalism, but asserts rather that this is always the case and is committed to gaining control of the state precisely so that, so that it can be used to oppress the oppressors so it can be turned against the enemies of socialism. Socialism, like liberalism, denied the inevitability and the goodness of social authority. Finally, socialism seeks to address the spiritual malaise of liberalism, not by seeking to return man to the only true path to happiness, the path of Christ, but rather, as Pius explains through, quote, a false messianic ideal, a pseudo ideal of justice, of equality and fraternity and labor, a deceptive mysticism, which communicates a zealous and contagious enthusiasm to the multitudes entrapped by delusive promises. Socialism challenges none of the vices en engendered by liberal society. It provides an avenue for righteous indignation and revolutionary action that does not demand moral reform or even a paradigm shift in thought. Socialism is liberalism's self-hatred. Thus, while entertaining no sympathy for liberal individualism, Pius can state definitively, quote, no one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist, end quote. Socialism emerges only from within the logic of liberalism and within the social spaces that have already been reduced from structures of solidarity to structures of self-interest. This is why it appeals not to the poor, but to the most liberal segments of the population, the upper middle class. When the liberal ordering of society occupies only a small amount of the social space, when most of society is still structured in solidarity, socialism is small and relatively unimportant. As liberalism colonizes more of the social space, reducing areas of solidarity to areas of exploitation, the appeal and significance of socialism grows. It is only when the structures of solidarity are all but eliminated that the struggle between capitalism and socialism, between individualism and collectivism, can be mistaken for the totality of social possibilities. As liberalism succeeds in reducing more of the social space to zones of competition, and so as the appeal of socialism grows, at the same rate, according to Pius's logic, liberalism itself becomes increasingly corrupt and power structures within it increasingly cynical. The same holds true for the growing socialist opposition. As liberalism expands and so socialism expands with it, socialism loses its radical idealism and becomes increasingly cynical. Socialism is most ideologically pure when it is a tiny minority position with relatively little chance of success. As it gains ground, it becomes increasingly concerned with power like everyone else. As liberalism advances, 
the elite class is more and more inclined to use the state to its advantage, with, which increasingly means using the state to fill in the social gaps left by the destruction of solidarity without disrupting the financial gains that that destruction had wrought. Welfare systems replaced extended families, things like that. At the same rate, socialism gains in appeal, and so the powerful are inclined to use socialist rhetoric or policies to their own advantage. Bank of America funds Antifa, for example. At the same time, as socialism becomes more popular, it becomes more integrated into the regime, and so itself becomes a vehicle of self-interest. The leaders of BLM are millionaires, for example. The point of all of this is that capitalism and socialism are engaged in a sort of dance that converges on what Pius XI called economic dictatorship and what John Paul II called state capitalism. If so, in such a system, economic and political power collapse into each other. The masses are reduced to self-interested workers and consumers, and all of it is spiced up with, a, with fanatical socialist-style rhetoric that isn't really aimed at overthrowing the system at all, which in the end always seems to buttress the power of the most powerful. This is the system in China. This is a system that I think is being built here. Pius XI's analysis of the 1920s and 1930s is clearly applicable to our own situation. It would be hard for anyone to deny that structures of solidarity have been rapidly dismantled over the decades since World War II. It is clearly true that as this happened, the market has greatly expanded, colonizing the vacated space. At the same time, the state has greatly expanded, facilitating the growth of the market while seeking to minimize the social fallout of the destruction of solidarity. At the same time, leftist rhetoric has gained traction. At the same time, business interests and political interests have grown together to the point where I don't think they can be meaningfully separated anymore. At the same time, we have experienced massive moral corruption among both our elite and among the masses. At the same time, people have become increasingly unhappy. Every year, we have more drug abuse, more alcohol abuse, more suicide, more people on antidepressants, more and more people self-identifying as lonely. And it is obvious that we have more and more anger. All of this fits into the pattern identified by Pius XI. This, then, is why we have more interest in socialism. So now for the second half of the question, what should we do about it? Pius is very clear. The problems we face are caused by our, our abandonment of Christianity, and so of social justice and social charity. The only solution is the restoration of society's orientation toward the true and the good and its grateful reception of the grace of God. In other words, conversion. As Pius wrote, quote, if human society is to be healed, only a return to Christian life and institutions will heal it, end quote. A place to begin is perhaps recognizing that what are often presented as economic problems are in fact moral ones. We have to reassert the superiority of the moral law over all other so-called laws. As Pius asserted, quote, if we, faithfully observe, if we faithfully observe the moral law, then it will follow that the particular purposes, both individual and social, that are sought in the economic field will fall in their proper place in the universal order of purposes. And we, in ascending through them, as it were, by steps, shall attain the final end of all things, that is God, to himself and to us, the supreme and inexhaustible good, end quote. Both our political left and our right miss this. Pius writes, quote, just as the unity of human society cannot be founded on an opposition of classes, 
so also the right ordering of economic life cannot be left to a free competition of forces. For from this source, as from a poison spring, have originated and spread all the errors of individualist economic teaching, destroying through forgetfulness or ignorance the social and moral, moral character of economic life. It held that economic life must be considered and treated as altogether free from and independent of public authority, because in the market, that is, in the free struggle of competitors, it would have a principle of self-direction which governs it much more perfectly than would the intervention of any created intellect." End quote. Pius is not here calling for leftist-style state intervention. The directing principle he is calling for is not that of a command economy. Rather, he writes, quote, loftier and nobler principles, social justice and social charity must therefore be sought, whereby this dictatorship may be governed firmly and fully. Hence, the institutions themselves and peoples, and particularly, the, particularly those of all social life, ought to be penetrated with this justice. And it is most necessary that it be, that it be truly effective, that is, established a, a juridical and social order which will, as it were, give form and shape to all economic life. Social charity, moreover, ought to be as the soul of this order, an order which public authority ought to be ever ready effectively to protect and defend. He is, of course, talking first about morals, about justice, and secondarily about the social structures that flow from them. To conclude then, liberalism, Pius asserts, was founded upon the denial of authority and unleashing of self-interest. This led in history to increasing corruption as the remnants of Christian civilization were eliminated. These remnants included such things as disinterested government, tolerance for differences, a sense of duty, the work ethic, family values, notions of fair dealing, notions of service to the community as a whole, all things that American conservatives tend to champion. It was precisely the overthrow of such pre-liberal values and social structures that cleared the way for the rise of socialism. As Pius wrote, quote, there would be today neither socialism nor communism if the rulers of the nations had not scorned the teachings and maternal warnings of the church. On the basis of liberalism and laicism, they wished to build other social edifices, which, powerful and imposing as they seemed at first, all too soon revealed the weakness of their foundations, and today are crumbling one after another before our eyes, as everything must crumble that is not grounded on the one cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ." End quote. The principles of political liberalism themselves, let's, li let's list them. Equality before the law, respect for private property, universal negative rights, tolerance. These principles themselves, it turns out, were dependent on the survival of a substrate of pre-liberal social order. When liberalism destroyed the substrate, it destroyed the possibility for itself. Hence, in the 1930s, Europe's decline into fascism and communism. What we need to see in our own time is that to resist, resist the rise of socialism, to try and return to the substrate of proper social order and proper values, must not be an attempted return to liberalism, or, if I dare to speak an especially charged word, to capitalism. It must rather be a return to Christianity, to structures of solidarity, to decentralized politics and distributed property, to subsidiarity. As Pius writes, quote, 
No genuine cure can be furnished for this lamentable ruin of souls, which, so long as it continues, will frustrate all efforts to regenerate society unless men return openly and sincerely to the teaching of the gospel. The sordid love of wealth, which is the shame and great sin of our age, will be opposed in actual fact by the gentle yet effective law of Christian moderation, which command men to seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, end quote. Or in another place, he writes, we have shown, quote, that the means of saving the world of today from the lamentable ruin into which a moral liberalism has plunged us are neither the class struggle, nor terror, nor yet autocratic abuse of state power, but rather the infusion of social justice and the sentiment of Christian love into this social economic order, end quote. Thank you. Thank you.